Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. School's out for the summer for TDs as the doll rises after a stormy season for the coalition. We discuss some of the big issues that rocked Leinster House in recent months. So the message clearly from government as you head off uh, into the recess for the next eight weeks in a budget that is 12 weeks away is you are on your own. New Spanish Hospital has opened, offering patients stuck on long waiting lists in Ireland a new alternative for surgery. We hear from one of the first Irish patients to travel over. Well, I think they're going to build a new unit in Cork, which would have been two years. And I've had it done four or five weeks. And later, look ahead to the All-Ireland Weekend and the other big news stories of the week at home and abroad. You can join the conversation on Twitter with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, financial institutions have begun providing a streamlined loan service for people to have medical operations abroad and a new approach to bypass long waiting lists in Ireland. Well, joining me now from Spain for more on this is Irish Examiner Health correspondent Neve Griffin. Neve, you're joining us from Alicante tonight, where a new 64 bed hospital has opened up. What can you tell us about that hospital and the deal that's been done uh, between a hospital group there? and the HSE here to get people off waiting lists onto a plane and to travel over there for surgery. Uh, good evening, Claire. Well, the, the hospital is operating under the EU cross-border directive. So this is a ruling that applies across all of Europe and it gives European citizens the right to get healthcare in another country and have that repaid by your own um, health service. So this hospital in Spain, like a lot of other private hospitals in Ireland as well, has seen that this is a good opportunity for them. So they've um, opened a hospital and it's, I suppose, unusual in that this hospital is targeting that market and they're hoping to get Irish and probably German patients, they said, who will have qualified for funding and will come and get the operation there and then go back home and get the money refunded by the HSE. So it's the likes of those uh, routine procedures that we know there are very long waiting lists for here, hip replacements, knee operations, spinal procedures, cataract surgery and the like. But is there a lot of upfront cost to the patient? We mentioned loans there from financial institutions. Are people having to go to the credit union in order to pay for the initial costs and the outlay? Yes. Yes, um, they are. So the, the cost, like maybe in Spain, a hip replacement might cost about €10,000. Or if you went to Poland, it's €6,000. So you would have to arrange, so not you would yourself separately arrange a loan through maybe the, the credit union or maybe a family or, fa or, or friends. 
and then you go over to whichever hospital you're going to get the operation and then it's only afterwards that the money is repaid so you wouldn't want to be um you know too stuck for money yourself that that would want to be a, a completely separate issue and the hse funding only repays the cost of the operation so your travel expenses your food your accommodation I think we might have lost Neve there, um, but I think oh, she was. Oh, have we got sorry. you back, Neve? Can you hear me there? Uh, well, I, I was still here talking to myself, maybe. Okay, um, Neve, so maybe you can I, tell I, us um, just uh, because I know you have to cover all those things yourself, your flight and your accommodation and everything around that. Um, but how many people the HSE envisage using this hospital? Well, the hospital are hoping to do about 1,500 Irish operations for Irish people in a year, um, which is quite a lot, really. Um, last year, 571 people went from Ireland to all hospitals across Spain um, for various operations. Um, but I think the HSE would quite like to see, I mean, the service is there. It's there for anybody to use. And the HSE, obviously, it would suit, suit them, I suppose, to get people off the waiting list in the same way that people from Northern Ireland come down to Cork and Dublin to the private hospitals here to get care under a similar um, arrangement called the uh, ROI reimbursement service. Because obviously they're not in the EU directive anymore since, they, since Brexit. Okay, Neve, thank you for bringing us up to date and bringing us all the latest from that hospital um, in Alicante. Thank you for that. Well, for more on this now, I'm joined by Virgin Media News correspondent Zara King, special correspondent with the Irish Examiner Mick Clifford, activist and fo former Socialist Party TD Ruth Coppinger, executive editor with the Daily Mail Group John Lee, and business correspondent at The Currency, Rosanna Cooney. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Ruth, to come to you first on this, what's your, your view on it? Forget about waiting here, hop on a plane, get over to Spain and, and get your operation that you may have been waiting years for here um, in a matter of weeks. I think it, this is really horrible, you know, to think that people who are quite more maybe mobile, who have more access to borrow money, will be able to effectively skip a queue to get a treatment privately abroad. This is not what we need. We need investment into the public health system so that you get treatment on the basis of most need, not on the basis of most money. Mm. I think another, an interview that I heard earlier on with the company that's behind this, so it seems to be this is a business initiative by uh, an Irish company to source, you know, places around the world and in Spain where sure. people can go. And I think... Um, <laughs> There's all sorts of questions that need to be asked about that. Well, I uh, think... Commission. So, so, I mean, it is interesting that it's an EU cross-border scheme. It won't be the first hospital to, to, to carry out surgeries there. People are desperately in need of, of... and in a lot of pain and willing to do it. Isn't it a solution? Well, I, I totally understand why anybody would do this. I'm not blaming anybody for it. But th that cross-border directive was more designed to assist people to be able to mm. access services that weren't provided in their own country. We're well able to provide hip replacements, to provide, you know, gastric surgery and all of these things. But the problem is, you know, the resources haven't been put into the public mm. health system. And I think, you know, elderly people, are they going to be able to go for a hip replacement over to Spain? I, I think that really, you know, we need to invest in the public health system and let people get based, based on the need, not on... You yeah. know, money. It's interesting, Mick. Um, I mean, certainly there's a lot of positive spin put on this story and this state-of-the-art facility that's opened up and it's going to reduce waiting lists by allowing people to travel. 
um, with, within the EU to have surgery. Um, but the costs mean that not everyone will be able to go. Yeah, it's an indictment to the health system here. It's an indictment to the two-tiered system. Um, it's not the first kind of initiative like this. We had the cataract bus that went from Kerry to Healy Reyes, organised it up to the north. And, uh, you know, it was a similar idea of taking advantage of that directive. I mean, it, it, there's something distasteful about it because it's, it's another element of the financialisation of health. The other side of the coin is, though, I can't sit here and say that nobody should do it. If somebody mm. has access to a loan and they want to get this done, uh, the one thing I would be small bit concerned about is this concept that you, you, you take out your loan, you pay for it, and you reclaim it after. How solid and how quickly you get back the money and how much that's going to cost you, we'd have to wait and see how that um, develops. And of course, you do have to pay for your flights and your accommodation, um, and you won't get that money back. Uh, let's talk to someone um, who, who's undergone surgery at this hospital. A short while ago, I spoke to Michael Carroll from Ballyfahan in County Cork, who was one of the first patients treated at the hospital last week for cataract surgery. And I began by asking him why he travelled there. This has actually worked out a lot better for us than taking a package holiday. So most of it is covered by the HSE. It's been very good the way it's been organised. Were there upfront costs, though, that you had to pay for yourself, Michael? Well, my upfront costs... I tried to fly out direct from Cork, but it was too expensive. So we went Cork, Manchester and Alicante which worked out at a quarter, 25% of the price of flying direct from Cork. Okay. The accommodation was very reasonable. It worked out well for you. Did you have any idea of how long you would have been waiting were you to go on a waiting list back home? Well, I think they're going to build a new unit in Cork, which would have been two years. And I've had it done four or five weeks. So for you, it's all been worth it? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. I can see it. What were you saying, Michael? Tell us about uh, the difference that it's made to uh, the eye condition and, and what were you experiencing before the surgery? I was walking to walls and everything. My balance was totally off. It's completely changed. I'm a lot more confident in myself. It's really transformed who I am. Okay, Michael, thank you so much for joining us tonight from Spain and best wishes with your recovery. Thank you. That's Michael Carroll telling us about his experience. Um, Zara, when you hear about the waiting list here and Michael mentioning there that he would have been possibly two years on a waiting list for cataract surgery when he's talking about the, the impact that it's had on his life. Um, and I know when, uh, he, he was saying before as well that it was like there was a plastic bag over his head. His vision mm. was so poor. Yeah. He speaks there about walking into walls. But there's so many people like Michael and that the waiting lists have soared since the pandemic. 
Yeah, Claire, and we hear from them all the time. They're constantly contacting us saying, can we can we help them as journalists to highlight their plight and highlight their stories? Because they feel like if they tell their story or go public, that somehow it might help them to speed up the process. But of course, the reality is that they find themselves waiting. Um, Stephen Donnelly did speak at a press conference in the last uh, week or so when he was alongside the new acting chief medical officer and uh, assured journalists on that particular day that uh, the waiting lists were going to be cleared. They were uh, very much on course to bring those waiting times down by the end of this year. He said the only thing that would stop it would be if there was a major COVID surge and there had to be cancellations. In fact, he said that the waiting times would go down to the lowest level in five years by the end of 2022. So uh, there's certainly a, a target there by the Department of Health and the government. Uh, perhaps this is part of the strategy that uh, people will go abroad to get that care. But uh, in the meantime, the reality is that there are people on the waiting list who've been there for a very, very long time. I mean, it's, it's sad to hear Michael sort of say the impact it's had on his life. Um, obviously, he looks great and seems to be sort of recovering quite well. But uh, I think Ruth makes a valid point about the fact that uh, there are people who are not uh, financially in a position to do this, mm -hmm. but equally not mobile. If you've been on a waiting list for a really long time for a yeah. surgery, you're not going to be able to travel for it. Yeah, the financial cost of this as well, Rosanna, like to the state, when we look already that so far, I think 600 patients have been um, approved for surgery in Spain, but it's at a cost of about two million, isn't it? Mm, I think it's it's really really worrying. I mean, this isn't even a long term solution. It's barely a plug, and I think this is it's it's just hor horrendous when you hear those kind of stories, and you'd wonder how much this is going to impact the, then the state care mm. in the long term, and we don't know. Um, yeah, what do you think, John? I mean, would you would you think this is a good news story? Uh, well, um, not when you hear Michael's um, trek across Europe to get there. It's rather dispiriting and sad for the man that he had to go through that. He doesn't sound like a, a wealthy um, uh, health tourist in any in any fashion. And of course, as, as, well, he was he was explaining earlier that they actually managed to sort of build a holiday around it. So I mean, maybe for some people, it kind of does work out well for them in that regard. But yeah, the, yeah I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure he, he, he took the chance and, and, and that's, a, that's a pleasant experience from after that. But as Mick said, it's an indictment of the health service. And it's interesting that this is occurring in the week that we see that if you put enough political um, pressure on this government, you can get favouritism for your um, particular health sector in your, in your area. Mark McSharry was on yesterday rightfully claiming um, credit for getting um, enhanced cardiac services in Sligo. Um, then we see on the other side, uh, um, as we emerge from the pandemic, we're straight back to um, parish pump politics in some ways, where members of Cabinet have opposed an HSE plan to close down sections of um, Navan Hospital against the advice mm. of most of most clinicians. Yeah, we, Stephen <clears throat> Donnelly, in fact, was, uh, I think he was at a parliamentary party, that's what it's been reported tonight by um, Daniel McCollum in The Examiner and, you know, voicing uh, opposition to the, to the HSE over certain, uh, certain issues and certain decisions that have been made. I think Leo Varadkar came out and said that, and made it clear that, that some members of Cabinet had a problem with it and it, it has been paused. It was denied by everyone involved that Paul Reid had been influenced by this um, mm. in his resignation from the HSE, his, his, his signal to leave the, the HSE, but he had contradicted the minister on radio the day before the, before he resigned. So what we're seeing is a lot of these sectoral issues in the health service went into, cold, um, into deep freeze during the mm. um, COVID pandemic, rightfully in many ways. And now Stephen Donnelly is going to have a rapid reintroduction to, and he hasn't actually faced it thus far, yes. the problems facing our health service that are endemic and 
deep-seated and there for decades. And, and Claire, I think it's worth noting as well, you know, we're dealing with a summer trolley crisis where we never really had a summer trolley crisis before now. So it's not just a winter problem now, they're dealing with it right through the summer and it's been a really difficult time. Uh, the relation to NAV, and I suppose if you ask Paul Reid, I spoke to Paul Reid about this a couple weeks ago, he would probably argue that him and Stephen Donnelly have had bigger rows, John, <laughs> over, over the last couple of years and that that would probably be a factor in it. But there's, there's no secret that the relationship between Paul Reid and, and uh, mm. Stephen Donnelly isn't exactly friendliest. Yeah, and then looking ahead, uh, then Ruth, to a, a winter of discontent, as Zara is saying about the trolley figures now. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I know we'll be probably be discussing the cost of living, but I just think everything that's looming for the government, 70% of people today in that mm. poll have said that they don't see any prospect of things improving in their lives. I think only 18% of people felt that things could get better. That's a real problem for the government and it's brought them to their lowest figures. I mean, Fine Gael below 20%. And we will talk yeah. about that, as you say, um, in the next part of the programme. Uh, but first, briefly, we're going to move to other news and we're going to go to the UK where former Chancellor Rishi Sunak is leading the race to lead the Tories to succeed Boris Johnson. Well, for more on this, we can cross to London now and correspondent Ollie Barrett. And Ollie, uh, bring us up to date on this. There was a second round of voting. Rishi Sunak is out on top, but it's a pretty tight race there between the five contenders. It very much is. We knew that today's rules were simple. Whoever came bottom today was going to be uh, eliminated, and that's what happened to Suella Braverman, the Attorney General. She is out, and it really is looking like a race between the top three contenders now to make it into that final two pairing, which will go to the party membership over the summer here in the UK for hustings and debates, and then a postal ballot among those party members to choose the eventual leader of the party and therefore the next UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak is out in front with Conservative MPs, but he's very closely followed by the Trade Minister, Penny Mordaunt, and behind her, the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss. So a lot will depend now, if those three stay in the front three positions, where the other votes go of the other candidates that are dropping out. Rishi Sunak will be very nervous indeed, because he knows he's seen polling that suggests that he might lose when it comes to the party membership vote against either Penny Mordaunt or Liz Truss. So both of those two fighting it out. Uh, it seems to be up against Rishi Sunak in that final pairing, but we have a weekend now of televised debates in which all of the candidates are saying that anything could happen and therefore uh, this all could change come the next vote from Conservative MPs, which will take place on Monday. Ali, uh, just to move away from the UK and another leader in trouble, Mario Draghi in Italy, uh, he is refusing to resign or there's, there's issues certainly around that. What's the latest? What can you bring us um, around that? That's right. Mario Draghi tendered his resignation today, but it was not accepted by the Italian president. So for now, he remains in charge. The reason he tendered his resignation was because the populist Five Star Party, which is part of the unity government coalition that Draghi leads, it withdrew its support for his package uh, of economic measures worth around 23 billion euros in support for families and households as, uh, amidst the cost of living crisis that Italy's facing 
rising like pretty much every other economy in the world. And Draghi had said that if Five Star withdrew their support in a confidence vote, he would have to resign. Well, that's what happened. He did tender his resignation. The president rejected it and says that instead he'll have to go back to Parliament and address uh, lawmakers in Italy on the potential steps forward. It looks like he may do that early or mid of next week, uh, but very much unclear when it comes to the political situation now in Italy. There could well be early elections, but as I say for now, Mario Draghi remains in post despite trying to resign earlier today. Okay, Ollie Barrett in London, there we leave us. Thank you for that. Well, my panel will be staying with me after the break. The end of term doll report card that you don't want to miss as inflation continues to store. There's no budget, whether it's early or late or emergency uh, or ordinary, that is going to get us on top of the inflation crisis. Welcome back. Now, as it's all wound up for summer recess today and politicians left Leinster House to start their holidays, the annual rate of inflation rose to 9.1%. It emerged last month, its fastest rate in 38 years. The latest figures from the Central Statistics Office show that. My panel is, is still here with me and we're here to discuss this. John Lee, I suppose, really bad news on the day that, uh, you know, schooled out for, for the summer, as it were, when it comes to Leinster House. Uh, they also had a really bad poll showing. Yeah, I, I just went back through the a quick look through the figures there uh, over the, la the last. I think the, the, what matters figures wise for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in particular is the general election. And they seemed to get a little stay of execution over the last year or so, pro probably principally because of the pandemic. But they had been in decline significantly. Uh, up until the 2020 general election, even in the, in, the pay, in the space of a couple of weeks. So, again, another figure I looked at, but I kind of added this up. If you look at the three leaders of, of Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party, cumulatively, they've been in power without break for 25 years. The Michal Martin was cabinet minister in, in 1997, and between the three of them, they've all been in cabinet solidly for, for, for that long. Clearly, the public want to change. And Sinn Féin are, are, are who they are turning to to offer that change. And the only way I think uh, this government can save themselves um, is, a, is a serious personnel change come the reshuffle in December. Is that going to happen? I don't know. Um, but there the two are no new are, are... faces. You know, as you say, we've had these... We've had the, the people in power, we've had the parties in power. Um, there is a lack of freshness there, no matter well, how much rejigging they do. Around well, what the, the parliamentary place. parties are, are saying less vocally, I think, in, in, in Fine Gael, but I certainly reported about Fine Fall at the weekend, is that the, maybe the top men have to have to look at themselves. Um, there is a huge problem there, whatever that is. This, the policies they have aren't mm. working. Housing clearly isn't. Um, it took them a year to get that underway. There are excuses. And I, 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 I was struck um, in Michal Martin's interview with pol political correspondents at Christmas that he was asked his greatest regret about, lock, about um, COVID mm -hmm. and he said was not, was locking down housing in the second lockdown. Yeah. Now, when, when they start rewriting history at that point, you know there's a problem. So I think the decline started for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael sometime in 2017, 2018, 
and has continued yeah. and it's going to be very hard for them yeah. to address it. Um, Ruth, we're talking about the, the cost of living, uh, annual inflation rate rising to over 9% last month. Was the government right uh, to hold out in the budget? We heard the Thornton again defending that move, saying a budget now is not going to make a difference to the cost of living crisis that we're in. I mean, did you ever hear the like, you know? The, the idea that people can wait two months for real action on this, like this is, I, I've been out in the doors in the last few weeks and I've noticed a huge change in how willing people. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Are to talk because this is really biting, you know? I mean, people who have Tesco delivery, that same items each week, it's gone from 80 to 120 euros. Uh, a, a driver instructor who doesn't get paid for petrol, you know, a carer who has to go to 18 mm. houses and has to pay. And the government actually thinks that people can wait. And one of the big costs that people are facing now is back to school. That happens now. It doesn't happen in September, which Leo Varadkar maybe under the illusion. And I think, you know, what we're seeing is we need money into people's pockets to pay for, for example, the back-to-school costs. I mean, what that... about the back-to-school allowance now when they did kind of make an announcement about that? Um, Sarah, you want to come I in on that? I was at that announcement, actually. So I went to the announcement of government buildings last week for that, Claire. I think the problem around that was that around 260,000 children will benefit from that extra €100 in the back-to-school allowance. There's roughly... Um, around 900,000 children in schools. So you're talking one in four kids really benefiting from that. And I think one of the problems with that that came up at that press conference was that that morning, Leo Varadkar had been on radio speaking about the fact that uh, a rising tide would lift all boats, that they would help everybody, including the squeeze middle. Um, everyone would be helped and then there would be targeted further supports for people who were, were really in dire straits. Mm. And then that evening, three government ministers are outside government buildings announcing this back-to-school plan and it really only helps one in four children. So there's, a, there's 
no consistency across the board when it comes to that. Uh, there's also is a that problem. the targeted help, though, that the government this said? This is targeted help as opposed to help important. for everyone. Exactly. So the minute that was announced, I was quite taken aback by the response. We got emails, uh, messages coming in straight away that evening when we reported that story saying, I'm squeezed middle, you know, I'm trying to fill my car. A lot of people suggesting, would they not just give us an extra €100 Euro for everyone in the children's allowance, maybe for the month of July or August? But €100 Euro is actually useless, it's nothing. I think it worked honest. out. I think the scheme actually, Ruth, worked out. They were telling us it was a €67 million Euro scheme and they told us it would be the difference of an extra €9 Euro a week in families' pockets, the families who would receive it. Apparently, the, the average cost of sending a child to school is about a thousand euro. Yeah. It's over well, a thousand. When you, when you take in the, yeah. the voluntary costs or the payment, you, but, you but do I do agree with Leo Varadkar on one thing yeah. about the budget. It's like people are going on about the budget, the budget, as if the budget, unless there's a transfer of wealth from oh, right. those who have to those who don't, there there is no relief for people, and there isn't actually any talk of what policies are going to be undertaken. To Mick, bring that about. Uh, Mick, I, I just want to a ask you on this. When, when they're talking about, you know, holding out in the budget, is this, is this is a political move, is it? That, look, if you think it's bad now, wait till the autumn and we need to have something really decent to announce. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think there's a couple of dynamics at work there. I mean, uh, Fergus Finlay, who's been advisor of government, has been writing recently about his experience... Um, in government when there was a serious inflation crisis. The comparisons with the current rate of inflation is around mid-84, mid when they were coming out of uh, seven or eight years of that. And one element to that was, if, if you keep chasing inflation, do you worsen it? Now, within that, though, you have the other element of, there are those who are worse impacted by this, and targeting them is the imperative. What overlaps with that, though, is you'll find that that's not necessarily the electorate, and therefore, politically, you have the squeeze middle and Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, to a certain extent, are going to want to concentrate on them, whereas resources, to a greater extent, I think, and, and in, in terms of, of equity, should be um, geared towards those who are most impacted. Yeah, and it, it is trying to get that balance right because we have groups like Barnardo's and, you know, people representing struggling families saying it needs to be more targeted and this energy credit of, say, €200 Euro going to every family in the country, and I think we're going to see more of that again in the autumn, simply is going to also help people who earn a lot of money and simply don't need it, Rosanna. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's an important point to make here as well in terms of inflation that, you know, the ECB, the European Central Bank, is going to start taking action on this. 21st of July, they're raising interest rates. From there on, they're going to, it's going to keep, interest rates probably will keep going up until inflation is licked. But I think the problem there is what comes after that, and that's a slowdown. And whether that's good or bad for people, it's even more difficult to say. So the issue of inflation is probably going to subside at some point. But. Yeah, um, yeah, very difficult and tricky situation. And a lot of people watching tonight will just really feel like this is going to be a tough enough um, summer, never mind when you look at all energy prices, fuel prices, what's coming down the line in terms of price hikes from the energy providers as well. Also struck today by the story, um, John, about um, refugees who have arrived into this country uh, seeking accommodation, being told there is accommodation for them here in Ireland and having to sleep on the terminal floor of Dublin Airport. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a politically sensitive area, but, uh, you know, some big decisions are going to, be are going to have to be made that weren't made at the outset. I recall being in Dublin Airport when um, the war had just broken out in the East and I asked Leo Bradker at a press conference, you know, 
with the assumption that th there was some big plan for dealing with the influx of, of these benighted people, um, whether this was the opportunity to do something uh, dramatic with the housing situation. Mm -hmm. And he, in his endearing way to some, replied, well, if there was something dramatic we could have done with housing, we'd have done it already. So right from the outset, there was an admission um, that they didn't really have a plan that was going to be yep. politically accept and, uh, acceptable. And yet we heard today Dara Brown defending the plan when he was accused of it, this housing for all plan, this €4 billion Euro plan already being outdated. I mean, the, the route... We're actually kind of been talking about this probably for 10 years nearly now that this housing crisis has been biting. And the continued failure of them to actually build public housing, which is at the root of this, we all know, every academic agrees on that, that the only way the previous housing crisis was resolved was by local mm. authorities or the state building houses on quite a major scale. I mean, in my own constituency, where Leo Varadkar is, is a TD, there's a big land bank that's still sitting idle and there's a plan to build on it now, but it's like 20 houses here, you know, 20, like, three years later. And, you know, we need actually resources put into that. That's at the root of the problem. And a generation two's are locked out of home ownership. And when it comes to making a decision about who stays in power and who comes in, um, a lot of it will hinge on that, whether they have a roof over their heads. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, Claire. And I think it's really interesting that we've been hearing more from that squeeze middle now that we talk about it. I know we talk about targeted supports, and there's no question that the people who need it most need that help. But the reality is that there are middle-income earners now who are really struggling. Uh, you know, we've done many stories of families and heard from families who are in situations where uh, you've got two people in the household working, they've got good jobs, they've saved enough for a deposit, they can get a mortgage but because of the central bank lending rules they can't get enough money to actually bid on a house to buy a family home. So they find themselves in a constant cycle of renting, then they're getting a text, a notification from their landlord, I'm selling the house, you need to be out. So you literally have families who are in a situation where maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago they would have been well able to buy a home, they're not able to do that now. These families are also finding themselves uh, facing into things mm. like food poverty. The Children's Rights Alliance speaking yesterday saying that the school meals programme, Tanya Ward saying that should be expanded out to all schools, not just to DESH schools. And she talks about um, the idea of the working poor becoming a reality right now. These are things that are coming up all the time, every day. We're hearing from people in their own homes that they can't afford to fill lunch boxes, they can't afford to fill their cars. They're sacrificing visits to elderly yeah. relatives, Claire, because they can't afford the petrol to go there. Yeah. I guess the point about it is, Rosanna, is what do the government do with this? They keep saying this is something that is out of our hands. It's not just a problem that's in Ireland. We're seeing, you know, the Italian Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, all the issues that he's facing um, there and, and other countries are as well. What is the government to do to resolve this and the coalition to do uh, to get themselves back on track coming into the new dual term? Well, I think the problem is that we're constantly fighting these present-day fires, and it's so myopic. There's no big overhaul. There's no vision of where we actually need to be. Like, even thinking about housing for all, it was supposed to be 9,500 new-built social, new social homes a year. It was 5,000 last year. It's less than that this year. And so we're just dragging along. And I think the big thing is that's really going to hurt us is that when we maybe go into this slowdown or potential recession. It's not going to be like 2008. Like, house prices aren't going to fall off a cliff. They're going to remain. They're maybe, with the interest mm. rates, they'll become slightly cheaper or less, that prices will go down. But that doesn't mean they'll be more affordable for people. So I think it's a radical overhaul and it's not these minuscule little yeah. tweaks.
That's a real problem for government, isn't it, though, because everything is hinging on this housing for all plan. You know, Darrell Bryan, again, out today defending it. Um, and, and it's all about that and getting that right. But already, uh, as, as we're hearing, they're saying, well, you know, if it wasn't for this, that and the other things would be a bit different now and it would be, be, be a bit better. Yeah, and there's, there's no doubt though, that there are a number of factors, the Ukrainian war, the pandemic, the cost of living crisis that are beyond the control of the government and they all feed into it. But at the end of the day, uh, the electorate are not really concerned about that. All they see is that things are not happening, that it's difficult it's nearly impossible to buy a house. Uh, it's, renting a house is just basically exorbitant altogether. Mm. And there hasn't been any change in that. No, it's going to, it, it, it would always take a while to get that kind of change, to get to a stage where house prices came down, or rents more importantly came down. But mm. there's absolutely no sign of that there now. And that is, I think, the biggest problem the government have. Yeah, and rents, and again, we, we kept hearing about it as well with the brain drain that comes with that, that we're having teachers who are yeah. leaving city centres so they can't fill jobs in schools. Um, you're having huge problems around that. With all of this, John, um, you've handed out your political ratings for the term. Who's the winner and who's the loser, do you think? That's out of, some leader now. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I'd give it to the Housing Minister after that discussion. Um, and Ruth might want to uh, cover her ears for the for the, for the winner. Um, <laughs> the I did the ratings a couple of weeks ago, and they haven't changed much since. It's it's um, it's always hard to pick a winner in a government that has that has we can't forget been dealing with one issue up until uh, till January February, and I think. The team maybe to look at for... You're struggling to find a way. No, 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 I, I, I have an answer, but I just don't want to be too effusive about people because I, I might get a, a belt off um, Ruth here, but... Um, Ruth, I'll have to let you I'm know. not yeah, violent. Yeah. Is, like is that, that change that might Reveal be... the name. That change that might be possible within the government might come from the younger ministers. I think Simon Harris has done very well in, in, a, in, a, in a department that was really, I'd say, he felt was given to him as a sop. It's kind of a makey-up department that didn't exist in the past. It's a really important place that he has done well and, and he has gotten small wins at a, 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 in, a, in a challenging area. Right. Helen McEntee too, but I think Jack Chambers has probably done the best in, in, in Cabinet. A young minister coming forward, he succeeded in getting through some Irish language legislation as part of his, um, one part of his portfolio. And now as Chief Whip, he is uh, holding together what is a minority government. Any place called um, uh, and he, he and he plays golf. golf yeah. Well, no, he didn't play with me. I played his brother once. But you, Ruth, you haven't been taking any substances or Ruth, anything. Ruth might have an answer there because they, they have shared a constituency and will probably yeah, face Ruth, each I, other in the next Ruth, general I have, election. I, ha I have to ask you about that. Um, your thoughts on that particular view about Jack Chambers and actually um, who the potential winners have come out uh, in this all term. Well, I mean, Jack Chambers is minister for. I don't think anyone in Dublin West actually really knows. So. Um, now, it's not about personalities, really. I don't want to be making it about personalities. We're, we're dealing with a government that's allowed a huge number of crises. Some of it is international, mm. but the housing crisis has been here for 10 years. Fine Gael are in power 11, 11 years, you know? So um, I think that's what people will judge them on. OK, there we'll leave it. My thanks to Rosanna and Ruth. Stay with us, uh, because after the break, the rest of our panel are with us, and we will discuss, among other news stories, the story of athlete Mo Farah.
Welcome back. Ivana Trump, the first wife of former U.S. President Donald Trump, has died at the age of 73. Mr. Trump made the announcement on his social media platform, Truth Social. He wrote, I'm very saddened to inform all those that loved her, of which there are many. She was a wonderful, beautiful and amazing woman who led a great and inspirational life. Okay, now to look at the other big news stories of the week. Zara, Mick and John have stayed with me. And one that has gained worldwide praise and attention this week was athlete Mo Farah, who opened up about being trafficked to the UK illegally under the name of another child. We can take a look at a clip now from a BBC documentary that aired last night. Most people know me as Mo Farah, but it's not my name or it's not the reality. The real story is I was born in Somaliland, north of Somalia, as Hussein Abdi Kahin. Despite what I've said in the past, my parents never lived in the UK. When I was four, my dad was killed in a civil war. You know, as a family, we were torn apart. I was separated from my mother and I was brought into the UK illegally under the name of another child called Mohammed Farah. It's an unbelievable story, really, isn't it? Um, Mick, um, you know, known throughout the world for his, his, his amazing athletic career and opening up after all this time about the reality of what happened to him and really shining a spotlight on trafficking. Absolutely, and a story of uh, triumph over adversity. And at the same time, very sad story when, when, mm. when you think of his, his reality, his, his real life. And watching, there's an interesting part of it where he was put in touch with the real Mo Salah, the, the, the man whose name he effectively took. And, you know, he, he had a, a Zoom or whatever with him and... Uh, you, know, you could see he was emotional, like he was, he was seeing this character I effectively became you to some extent, he was saying. But what struck me about it was uh, that real Mosal, if you want to call him that, um, there'd be no welcome for him in the UK today. Like, Mosal is, is this man that, uh, he's a brilliant athlete, he's done fantastic mm. things. Um, but his brother, his, his alter ego, if you want to call him whatever, the, the nature of the way things have changed in the UK uh, that, and, OK, fair enough, they can say that they still admire this man and, and it was pointed out that there's no question of his citizenship being revoked even though he wasn't whom he initially was supposed to be. But all that is predicated on the fact that he's a brilliant athlete and he's carrying the flag for the UK. Um, but it's, it's just a juxtaposition between that and this business of, for example, most desperate people in the world uh, applying for asylum and you're sending them off to Rwanda. So, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't get away from that aspect of it, notwithstanding as a human story, it was a fantastic, um, that thing of um, yeah, triumph over the, adversity. It, it's the personal story, but it's also the story of a celebrity now, as Mick mm. was saying, it would be all too different um, if Had that person was else. unknown. Yeah, and that's the point, isn't it, Claire? I suppose a barrister at the time, when he's thinking of coming out about this, told him that there would be a real risk in coming out, that there was going to be uh, potential challenges there. He was told that perhaps his British nationality uh, could be taken away, but uh, the British Home Office now saying that there'll be no action uh, whatsoever taken against him. It was interesting as well that he spoke about the fact that it was actually his children who sort of encouraged him and inspired him to come out and talk about this. Uh, he had said on Instagram, 
uh, prior to the documentary broadcasting that um, he wanted uh, his family to understand more about the experiences that led us to becoming the family we are today. So uh, it seems he's on a sort of a personal journey in terms of his identity, but you're right. If somebody else in that similar situation who mm. maybe wasn't famous, didn't have so much uh, Olympic success, if they came forward, would they receive the same level of support? And certainly shining a light on the UK, um, the UK policy that's so contentious um, right now. Um, to talk about a big story um, on social media, well, not just, it's, it's a huge story in, in in the world of big tech, Elon Musk and uh, Twitter, the spat goes on. The company is planning to sue the world's richest man to force him to complete the deal to buy Twitter when he's decided he wants out of this deal. I wonder, is this another victory for Michael D? Didn't Michael D <laughs> frown upon um, you know, Musk's attempts? He Maybe he's, the moral pressure has forced him back. But um, <clears throat> he seemed to make a joke out of the fact that he was being sued, whereas... Legal experts have said that they have a, a serious case in New York and the United States in general that take a very dim view of messing around when it comes to mergers, but probably not something he has to fear, uh, fear a loss of. I, I, don't, I, like, I don't know if the ownership of a, a, a social media platform by whichever chosen billionaire you have makes that much of a difference. I could be completely wrong, maybe well, there he's... Was a, a, there was a lot of worry about it at the time when dark, all of this well, was, annou was announced. If you think, if you think Twitter's yeah. bad now, Whitley would have seen with Elon Musk There was, the but show. Tra traditionally, through history, um, uh, newspapers and now um, large media companies have been owned by rich men and, and other sections of the media have been owned by wealthy men for a reason. Um, and it, it, it can depend on the person. If there's a fear that Elon Musk was going to interfere editorially, if that's possible on Twitter, which is a, which is a chat room in many ways, um, then maybe it's a good thing. The big question at the time and um, was, was would Donald Trump come back onto the Twitter platform mm. if Elon Musk was to get back his, his views around free speech? But it's, it's an increasingly uh, toxic platform as well that, yeah. that has been criticised for changing a lot from what it was originally to what it is now. It is clear, and it's a difficult space to be in, I think. You know, I mean, I've spoken before personally about the fact that I've taken a massive step back from Twitter in the last couple of months because I don't feel like Twitter is the type of space where uh, things are sorted if you have a problem. And one of the issues with Twitter is that if somebody uh, writes something nasty about you or, or something quite personal and you report to Twitter, it's very rarely, if ever, dealt with. I think that's one of the biggest issues that platform has. Now, all the platforms have a similar issue, but I think Twitter has a particular issue around that. Mm, and that's before um, we even talk about Elon Musk's interest in it or where that's going to go to. Um, let's talk about the weather. We are expecting this great weather, well, great weather, some would say worrying weather, um, to hit in from Sunday, a heat wave. We're really seeing it around Europe where there's you know, wildfires in, in, place, in places like Portugal and Spain, their second heat wave in a matter of weeks. But here we're being warned, it's going to get pretty hot, Mick. Yeah, and this is where I have to say, Claire, that I, I, um, I, I take leave from my genuine concern for climate change. Uh, if the sun is shining and baiting down on, from Friday week on for a couple of weeks, I, I, I live with the, the impact this has had on the climate. Just for those two weeks. Okay. After that, it can rain, it can be normal weather. Right. But uh, so far, we're only been told it's lasting until next Wednesday. You're going to so. pause uh, your concerns about climate change. Yeah. Yeah. Get it outside. It is from Kerry, where they don't really get sunny weather anyway. So, well, well, the, actually, what passes for a heat wave there now is not. 
But we are talking about, it will, uh, and it's been reported, it's going to be a shock to um, many people, and especially older, vulnerable people, if we're hitting temperatures of 30 degrees um, Sunday, Monday into Tuesday, that a lot of people won't be prepared for that. And it's the, it's the warm nights, the hot nights for elderly people in particular, that's a bit worrisome. And our infrastructure isn't, isn't prepared for, um, for that kind of heat. Uh, this year, I, I know, Mick was joking about my, uh, my proclivity for golf, but... Um, we have noticed incredible wind um, rates this um, this last six months, and certainly I have, as a kind of outdoors person, have noticed changes in the weather. And the wind for me has been the has, the, has been the big change. But this clearly is yeah. it's a, it's a trend that's set in, and it's down to global warming. There's no denying that. Uh, good weather, all Ireland finals. Zara Vianney, interest, Kilkenny and Limerick going head to head at Croke Park? Uh, well, as a Waterford woman, I suppose we haven't had many all Ireland oh, final days, unfortunately. But um, you know what really kind of. had one that was actually. Well, like, yeah, very no, badly yeah, and it was, listen, we've had our moments. But I suppose one thing that kind of bothers me, even though I'm not, I couldn't claim to be a staunch GA fan because I'm really not, but I do like getting behind my county when, when they're in this. But I'm so disappointed at the timing of this because I think there are certain things in life, isn't there, that sort of you bookmark your year on. Absolutely. And it's like when you listen to a radio breakfast show and you know you're supposed to be in the car by the time the quiz is on or whatever you know like that you find yourself bookmarking moments in the year and I'm so disappointed that the All-Ireland isn't at that back to school time when you're it is strange so it's so it, yeah. so it does it does yeah. throw that summer oh, routine it feels it far totally too soon completely yeah. it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be happening yet. the only thing is that if Limerick win uh, that'll be three in a row Vincent Brown will be unbearable on Twitter <laughs> or wherever else <laughs> I'm, up for, I'm half Limerick I have to say I'm up for Limerick and if Galway Go win on. there'll be some race week I think than the football. Yeah, well, I would lead into I, that. I, I wouldn't be turning any money in that okay. yet, John. We'll see. There, there we'll leave we'll it. Um, that's all we have time for tonight. My thanks to Zara, to Mick, and John uh, from, all, from all the panel um, and from all the late team here. Good night. Do take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.